0: Language Lounge. My name is Michelle Ola. Today I'm talking to the 2019 Actful Teacher of the Year, Rebecca Aubrey. Rebecca has over 14 years of experience teaching Spanish in grades K through eight. She is a model word language teacher who is passionate about exploring the cultural and linguistic diversity of our world and equally passionate about empowering her students to do the same. In this episode, Rebecca talks about some of the important ideas that she's thinking about as she redesigns her curriculum from scratch, including incorporating trauma-informed instruction, being more culturally responsive, and ways to make language learning accessible to all students. So pour yourself another cup of joe, and let's talk about how we can intentionally design our curriculum and our classroom culture in a way that reflects what is important to us. Rebecca, good morning. Thank you for joining me here today. And why don't you first, not everybody might know not might not know Rebecca Aubrey. I find that hard to believe. But why don't you just introduce yourself super briefly. Tell us your context and then just talk about what we're going to talk about today. What's on your mind?
1: Okay. So good morning, Michelle, and thank you so much for having me here today. Uh, I am a middle school Spanish teacher currently in Eastern Connecticut. I, I consider myself an early language teacher at heart. I've taught in the K-8 spectrum range for, for many years, and it's it's where I I'd love to be. I'm very excited this year to be launching a new sixth grade program in my district. It's to finally bridge the gap between the elementary program that was rolled out a few years ago and the middle school program that existed. So I'm in a really exciting position right now to be working with my favorite age group and starting up something new. Awesome.
0: And so one of the things we talked about is you, you have this blank slate, right? You have this amazing yes. opportunity that we don't always get of starting from scratch, right? And really looking at your really digging deep into what you believe, right? What you teach, how you teach, and, you know, designing that program. So that's what we're going to talk about today, right?
1: Yes, I'm very, very excited about this.
0: Awesome. So let's start with kind of what are some big ideas or what are some things that you are looking at a little more intentionally as you are developing this program? What are some things that you might've done in the past that now you're questioning, new things you wanna try, uh, et cetera? Mm -hmm. So
1: what is one thing? Well, I I think it's really exciting to be starting with a a blank slate um, in the sense that I'm not working with other colleagues and combating kind of what has always been done before. So it's a great opportunity to just really start from scratch and hopefully inspire others down the road to do things maybe in a a different way. Um, I I would say this summer, some of the reading I've been doing that's been very interesting to me is around culturally responsive teaching practices. And I'm currently reading a book by Zaretta Hammond that's about um, culturally responsive teaching in the brain. And that's been very inspirational to me, kind of just even before I get into the content and what my units are going to be Thinking about the bigger picture and the type of classroom climate and classroom culture I want to aspire to create. Absolutely. So what are, have you,
0: I know you said you're reading this. We'll put that book title in the show notes if anyone else wants to take a look at that. Has there been anything right off the bat that's kind of struck you that has something that you kind of thought, oh, wow, I never thought of it through that lens of, of a cultural um, responsive teaching?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I would say the most, the biggest aha for me in that book on um, something many people might not know about. The, yeah, you and I are very good friends, and you might not know this about me, but my background is actually in political science. I did not know that, and actually. Was, did you know I was an international <laughs> studies person? So we have. No, I didn't. There you go. <laughs> so I, in, and I call it in my past life, was working on a PhD in Latin American politics. And I specialized in comparative politics. And, um, and international relations. And one of the big kind of uh, tenets in a lot of international relations and trying to understand how countries relate to each other in different ways is is to look at world values. And there's actually a survey that comes out every several years that's called the World Values Survey, and it looks at differences in how different cultures view the world. And one of the things that Zaretta Hammond talks about in her book is she, she cites not that same survey but a similar survey that looks at how most cultures outside of the United States value uh, collectivism over individualism, and so in the United States, the the success of the individual and the rights of the individual are very heavily focused, whereas in many other cultures in the world, and I don't want to generalize, but the, the data shows this, they focus a lot more on the collectivity, the social, the overall well-being of society. I think of the African concept of Ubuntu, mm-hmm. I am because you are and my well-being kind of rests in the well-being of others. And I had never before thought of applying that to my teaching and to my, cultural pra- into my classroom practices. And that's something that Zaretta Hammond puts up right at the forefront of her book. And because most of our students or many of our students are coming from more diverse cultures and family backgrounds, I don't necessarily even mean immigrants, but um, communities of color, um, Hispanic students, and then I have students from all around the world they're coming into our classroom having been raised in family environments with a very different type of culture. And so when we expect them to adapt to a normal, a traditional U.S. classroom culture that is more individualistic, there is a, a, a cultural conflict um, with the students and. Um, and that's been very eye opening and very
0: interesting to me. I, I love how it just even though we have our past experiences and our personal experiences, we don't always connect those right in in a way that should have been right. obvious. <laughs> like I should have known that. Right. From that background. Um, what is one example like concrete thing that you are thinking about doing differently based on sort of that understanding? Um, have you thought of anything yet?
1: So I I'd have, I do know from my students that they really like doing, particularly when we're talking about building their language skills, they really like doing partnered activities and group activities and particularly game-based activities. And this was, um, I read a separate article that Zaretta wrote, and I'm sorry, I'll try to find the source of that for you, recently where she just talked about three simple things that you could do and among them was to incorporate more social activities and more game-based activities. And I know that my students enjoy those. And I think something that I want to be even more purposeful with is finding because, again, many of our students are coming from a background where that collectivism and that social piece is so valuable for supporting their learning and pushing through problems in their learning. I want to bring in, I want to put that at the forefront in what I'm planning to do with my students. Um, And I, I also think it's important to be purposeful with it. Right. Right. Because we're trying to build language proficiency ultimately. But I want that to be a priority. And interestingly, I, I do survey my students at the end of every year and sometimes in the middle of the year and ask them what they've enjoyed learning about, what they didn't like, what I should get rid of, what they recommend we do next, topics they might be interested in. And overwhelmingly... My students last spring said they th- what they most loved was when they had those opportunities to do kind of group game-based activities. I think that's uh, so
0: important. And I love how you've mentioned brain-based many times because sometimes we have this idea that play is like extra or like we have to entertain the kids or things like that and that learning isn't always fun. But we know from, from brain research as well that play is extremely important and fun and humor and... And all of those things are important to learning. It's not just important for engagement, right? It's actually waking up their brain, getting them to pay attention, having them be ready.
1: So uh, right. I love that. And, and you know, I, just, I just want to interrupt you there because I think a lot of people know that I'm an, an elementary teacher and they think those games and the fun only can happen in elementary classroom. Um, you know, there's kind of a an an assumption that what we do isn't necessarily as serious and it can be more fun and game-based, but that's not true. A lot of the games and the fun that we do are purposeful and they're building skills and they're very effective. And I think educators in the older grades have something to learn from that because you don't, you don't stop wanting to have fun when you reach a certain age. Absolutely. Even as
0: adults, we don't want to sit there and be lectured to talked at, we still want some sense of enjoyment, fun, right? Absolutely. No, I, I agree a hundred percent. Um, I think that just, this is a side note, but I, what, I came from, you know, middle school teaching and kind of that sort of um, secondary background. And then I had the opportunity to work closely with early laying um, teachers and to observe them in their classroom. And you're absolutely right. There is so much that we in secondary can learn from those early language teachers, as far as being student centered, having, you know, purposeful, um, purposeful fun and engagement sort of things. So uh, I agree 100%. So thanks for bringing that up. So um, awesome. So what else uh, what else are you thinking about? So 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 incorporating more um, culturally responsive techniques or approach in that uh, climate and culture in your classroom is something that you're Mm -hmm. thinking about how you can deliberately and intentionally insert um, in your language instruction. Uh, are there What are some other big ideas or big foundational concepts before we get into like specific language sort of things that you're thinking mm-hmm. about or looking at?
1: So another piece that's always been very important to me is uh, trauma-informed classroom practices. And it's interesting, as I read about culturally responsive teaching, a lot of them are aligned and another important piece that I think we'll be talking about is also um, differentiation to, to meet the needs of all learners. And very often, the strategies that we would use for culturally responsive teaching, trauma informed practices, and differentiation are, are the same. And so, I think number one, um, you know, I think something you know about me is I adopted, uh, I was a, a foster parent, and I also adopted out of foster care. And one child I fostered at one point. Um, her, her father, who she'd been living with, passed away very suddenly, and he felt a heart attack coming on. And so he had her call 911, and then he made her get on the bus and go to school. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and he ended up um, passing away while she was at school. And so someone came and took her out of school. And I always keep that story in my mind because when our students walk in and sit in front of us, we have no idea what they've faced before they came into school that morning, the night before, the week before, the months before, what they might be afraid of uh, um, going home. And without knowing that, we need to be open-minded and we need to set up classroom practices that, that help them to feel safe. And I think layered onto that, we've been through a very traumatic last year. Mm-hmm. Everyone, absolutely. Everyone has, right? And so we, there's been a lot of talk about social emotional learning, but I also think we really need to think about trauma informed practices. Like I said, a lot of those overlap with culturally responsive um, teaching, you know, some really simple things that you can do where it's to offer students more choices. Absolutely. In, in how they're learning is happening and how they're showing their learning it's a really simple strategy that helps to differentiate but is also a a trauma-informed practice Um, you know just trying to be a little bit more flexible and choosing what's a must do and what's a can do you know is it really necessary for me to make the kids sit in their seat for the whole class or if they're walking around the room and still participating appropriately or not interrupting other people can i just let that go Mm -hmm. Um, those kinds of things. I think
0: I I think that's so interesting. I love one of the things you said, and I I think that as te- as a teacher and as um, an educator, I I need to ask myself this about a lot of things. Like what's a must and what's a nice to do, and you know, and really, and what's to stop doing. I always ask those three things. Like what what is a must do right now, and is at, at sometimes I think we are so caught up in our history, you know, what we've done in the past, what our expectations that we just don't stop and ask ourselves, like, is this really important? Like, can I let this thing go right now for this particular student for a various reason? And, and, um, you know, I think that's really uh, powerful to to be asking yourself, what are the must do's? What are the nice to do's? And, and working with that, especially, like you said, after coming off uh, this crazy, year. I don't, I don't even know if it's a, it's been more than a year now. Right. And going into this uncertainty and even that uncertainty is bringing stress and and trauma into our classrooms. Um, I'm sure. absolutely I know I have a, a, a 16 year old that, you know, hasn't been in school formally in, 18 months, you know, a year and a half, um, you know, those social interactions of what it's going to be like, it's not going to be the same as, as it was before. Right. And that's not necessarily bad. (laughs) We can learn, we can learn a lot from that. Right.
1: Right. And just, you know, I always think of, um, something that I learned from a, a colleague who was talking about how she responded to students who arrived late to class. And the typical response is, where were you? Do you have a pass? Um, you know, whatever. Right. And she just responds by saying, "The pulling the, the student aside and says, you know, is everything okay? Mm-hmm. And and just a simple change like that and deciding, you know, when a student has has shut down and is refusing to do work, to we, I think we can make a choice there to just not get into a confrontation and and approach it and respond to it when they're ready to talk by letting them know that you're you're there. Absolutely. Is there anything specific that when
0: you're looking at the culture, setting up your classroom culture and your classroom climate for safety, uh, you know, as far as that um, trauma goes? Is there any particular strategies that you're looking at incorporating?
1: Um. I, I I do allow students choice in seating, so my students are work in groups, and I allow them to choose their groups. I also have standing desks available in my classroom, and so a lot, even though a lot of our work is is group work and cultural, I'm sorry, group work and collective work, there are spaces set up where students can go and work by themselves if they choose not to. Um even some things as simple as the lighting in the room and allowing students choice in the lighting or or music are, are things that can help students to feel safer. Um, when I worked with younger students, and this is something I think even older students would benefit from, I often had these little like cubby spaces that um you know one one classroom I was in it was a bookshelf that uh, I took the bottom shelf out of and it became this little cubby space that a student could actually crawl inside of and and work inside of i've had students who like to go under the tables and i'm talking even you know 7th graders go under the table to do their work and i think that's a place that helps students feel safe and so i think it again always comes back to making those choices Are they on task? Are they they interrupting the learning of others? Are they doing what they're supposed to be doing? And, you know, if they're not bothering anybody and they're, especially if they're getting done what they should be getting done, just giving them that choice and that flexibility. I think another important piece in this, particularly for language learning, is creating a safe environment to learn a language. And to take risks with language, and so I personally don't like to force students to participate. Um, I don't like to cold call on students. Absolutely. Um, I I like to encourage students to volunteer, and we know that we then get the students who are the same ones who volunteer over and over again all the time. And so it just means after a little while, you you know give a little wait time, and you let them know you'd like to hear from some other people and. Um, a really effective strategy I have found for some of my students who have high anxiety about participating is to prep them ahead of time with some of the things that we'll be talking about in class and even going over to them with a sticky, and which is what I did when, when things were quote-unquote normal, write uh-huh. a, a little sticky and say, these are three things we're going to talk about. I would love to hear from you today, and even just kind of prepping them with that ahead of time. Um, when we were virtual last year, I had a couple of students, you know, because at the same time, speaking a language, you have to practice speaking right. it to learn it. Right. It's like, a fine I mean, you balance. Yeah, it. it is. It is a fine balance. Um, so I had a couple of students who I would email and, and let them know what some of the questions would be. And even I work with novice learners, even providing them in Spanish, what the question would be and what some of the sentence starters would be that they could use to answer. Um, providing them with some of that ahead of time really helped, I think, to students to feel safer and also letting them know that mistakes are okay, mistakes are how we learn, we don't laugh at each other. Those are all I think very important practices that relate both to building the the specific language teaching but also creating a safe environment.
0: Absolutely. So it's funny because um, are you have you learned a language as an adult, another language? Like, have you tried like from scratch? So I say that because I tried to learn. I went to a class and I tried to learn sign language um, and I forgot how stressful and scary and terrifying it is to be sitting there feeling like you don't know what's going on. I don't know this. Right. Right feeling very vulnerable and being called on, put on the spot to produce something. Um, And it was absolutely an eye opening experience for me, Uh, you know, just just really be not pretend like you're a student, but actually be a student in a classroom. And it really, really did. Um, affect me in a in a way that if I was in front of students, again, I would remember that feeling of panic and anxiety. And again, um, and I'm an adult. So you know, if you're in high school, middle school, elementary school, and you're, you know, being forced to produce something that you're not necessarily ready to do. Uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty scary and it doesn't feel like a safe environment. Right. So I I love that idea of saying, uh, you know, I'm going to call on you today and I'm going to ask you about this, you know, so, you know, like prepare it, you know, prepare your answer. I think that's So I'm not even,
1: it's, it's, i I I want to tell you a story, but I would say I'm not even necessarily an advocate of saying I am going to call on you today. I'll say I'd like to see you raise your hand. There you go. I like that. I I think I think for some students, some students, knowing you're going to call on them and being prepped is okay, but I think for some students, that would push their anxiety. Even the higher. Sitting <laughs> right. there. Oh my gosh, when is she going to call on me? When is she she's going she's to do True. it? She hasn't done it yet, she's going to do it now, you know. Um, but I, um, last week was in my classroom and the the building, the school opened the building up for students to drop in and and tour it, and so I met one of my incoming sixth graders who questioned me for about an hour and 20 minutes. Wow. And (laughs) like an
0: interrogation, I'd I'd call that, right? Oh, yes,
1: yes, yes. I tried to avoid that word, but it was somewhat (laughs) like an interrogation and about... Half of the time, it was some real worry around getting her locker open, um, being late to class, being late and missing her bus, how she would call home if that happened. And then the other half of it was anxiety about not understanding what was happening in class because I told her I use 100% target language and whether or not she would be forced to participate. And she um, was a kid with quite a lot of anxiety, but repeatedly questioned me like what I would do if she was working in a group and her group wanted to stand up and present, but she didn't want to. Um, and it was it was pretty heightened and and I don't ever want kids to feel that scared. At the same time, I need to build up their sense of security so that they can they can talk the language somehow because I think particularly with language teaching, not ever speaking it isn't really an option. Absolutely. You know, when, when, when I learned, um, you know, trauma-informed practices and some building classroom climate practices, one of the most important things I learned was uh, the power of offering students choices and really being clear about what your non-negotiables might be. And so for me, I kind of, I don't like that term, but a non-negotiable is they they have to be speaking the language somehow. They have to be practicing it somehow. So building up that safety for them so they do feel safe doing it but also identifying what might be the different ways that they could do it if they don't want to do it in front of the whole class maybe they'll choose a person in the class that they're they feel safe talking to and so that's something else I might often do is if I notice a student's really reluctant to speak ask them who in the classroom would you feel comfortable talking to them and giving them that that power and that autonomy that's
0: awesome thank you that's fantastic so you mentioned you know the culturally responsive trauma-informed you briefly mentioned You mentioned basically accessibility and differentiation, right, and making your class and language accessible to all learners. So tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so anyone who who knows me um, knows that um, differentiation and ensuring that all students can be successful in the language classroom is is one of my biggest soapboxes. I very, very firmly believe that every student should have access to quality early language programs. Um, And I know it's often the norm in many places to remove students from a language class if they have other resource needs, like if they need reading intervention or math intervention. And what I've often heard is, if they can't read English, how can we expect them to learn another language? Right. And I'm just going to give my. I'm just going to give my little pitch preach here, it. Michelle. Yes. I'm going to preach it. Um, learning another language supports certain skills. It helps them learn English. We teach them how to decode. We teach them how to draw on context clues. We teach them how to draw on background knowledge. So we're helping to build their English language learning skills. We bring in so much content from other areas. We really help to build skills across all disciplines. There's a lot of research that shows that it supports brain development, that students who study a language early um, perform better on standardized tests. But I also think fundamentally, we often have students who are very, uh, might have disabilities in certain areas, but are actually very adept at learning a language. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think of a student I had who was blind and wheelchair bound and was an exceptional language learner. And my classroom ended up being the only place that her one-on-one para didn't need to accompany her to because she was so successful because she had um, had to overcompensate for certain things. And one of them was with some of that auditory processing. So she was just amazing as a language learner. Um, and, and we have other students who we we don't fully understand the way their brains work, and they might really struggle with reading or really struggle with math, but there's something about a language that that they really excel at. And students deserve to have a place to be in school where they can feel good. And they can feel like they're an expert. I mean, I've often even had heritage Spanish speakers who are pulled from Spanish class because they have such low test scores everywhere else. Whereas you're taking away the one absolutely. place where they can be the expert, where they can feel like they're successful. They where can they help can their peers. Like no they bother. can absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. So... Um, I'm very excited to say that after um, you know my militance and the militancy of other people, <laughs> my district has finally, um, you know, has finally developed a schedule that enables students to continue to get their resource help and also stay in a in a language class. And so it does mean that we need to. Um, be implementing practices that support the needs of all learners. And this is a topic I presented a lot about. I'm actually doing an actful um, pre-conference workshop on it this year. But um, I think some things it really align with, you know, as we start to talk about building language proficiency, is really if we can focus on looking at where each student is at and how we're pushing each student individually where they're at and setting appropriate goals for that student. There's a lot of research that shows that offering students as much choice as possible um, can help support struggling learners. It's also a culturally responsive teaching practice, and it's a trauma-informed teaching practice. Like you said, it um, so ticks like, a
0: lot of boxes, right? It ticks it's one, a lot of boxes. That's one strategy right, right. there, That not, right. and not in a right. checklist like done, done, done way, but in a way that you can – meet all of those needs by picking up some of these right. specific practices.
1: Right. Awesome. Um, so definitely choice, you know, choice in, in what they might be learning about choice and in, in how they're showing their learning choice and how they are learning. And so it, it's, it's sometimes just very, very simple changes that you can make, you know, instead of, Saying every student needs to create a Google slideshow that is a menu from a Mexican restaurant, maybe we can tell them you can do your menu however you want. It does, you know, it does. Honestly, who wants to listen to a hundred <laughs> Google slideshows anyway? I I, I would die of boredom. Right. right. And so, you know, telling them it's it's so exciting when to watch kids' light bulbs go off when you tell them you can do it however you want. I just want you to be able to show me that you can describe some some common foods from Mexico or whatever your, your you know, reasons we should recycle, whatever it might be that, that they can do it however they want. And so students who really like technology might explore some, you know, developing a video game or making a website. Other students who like to draw might like to do it as a menu, like draw it out on paper. And so just giving them that choice gets them more engaged, it gets them more excited, and it lets them tap into where they feel that they're most successful.
0: And ultimately, they're going to learn more for that very reason. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Well, I love it. So I see another podcast in our future of differentiation in the world language classroom. I think that would be a whole nother uh, one that we could dig super deep into. I'm doing a three hour pre conference at a at a state conference about differentiation in the brain and how that works. So we could have really good talk about that, I think, think too. So awesome. So now, you know, we've got those underlying kind of foundational beliefs and things that you're really going to look at, like from a big picture. What other things as far as your language program and developing the curriculum and the content of that are you going to be looking at when you're developing this new, uh, this new programmer or or even not so much the what, but the how, like what's your process for bringing in that language proficiency piece of it as well?
1: Um, Well, I think there's a couple of different layers to that. And I think the content is important um, because we want to be the content and the context, because we want to, get students interested. We, we want them to find relevance and, and they're not going to want to talk about something that they can't relate to. And we need to get them talking, right? Exactly. Um, <laughs> so I think, you know, part of that is, particularly with younger grades, it's very helpful to look at what they're studying in other content areas. And so a lot of our unit how we identified our units was defined by what they were doing in social studies and even looking at English language arts. Um, you know, last year, for example, um, we did a unit in, in the French and Spanish classes that was all about who inspires us and why. And it was a great way to bring in that traditional unit about character traits, but with a purpose. And it overlapped with a unit they were doing in English language arts about heroes and literature and so we were talking in world language, and so they were reading about different inspirational figures in their English language arts classes and why that person inspired, and we were able to kind of recreate something very similar in a language classroom. And so their minds were already primed for thinking about what is a hero and why a hero might inspire me. Um, and so then they were that providing that that context and that connection to them really made the the unit more engaging and made them more willing to to wanna talk about it. That's a great unit. That's a great, that's an awesome (laughs) unit. Like, that's an amazing,
0: like, essential question that that every student, and it brings in those pieces automatically of what you talked about as far as differentiation, you know, it can bring in some social justice issues, some trauma, you know, it can bring in some of these other pieces, um, allowing those students to think about who their own heroes and values and character traits are. I I love that. That's fantastic. It's a different spin on, you know, identity or, you know, lots of different contexts that could fit in our content areas. Right.
1: So right. I love and, it. And we were able to bring in a lot of culture because we, we looked at um, certain cultures in the French speaking world and the Spanish speaking world and who some of those iconic heroes were from those cultures and why, and um, you know, we did even bring, by see Frida Kahlo behind yes. you <laughs> and uh, we, we talked about, we talked about Frida Kahlo and why she was an inspirational figure um, and that that brought in a lot of cultural content just by exploring some of her art yeah. and her history. and, and, like I, but, I open, and yeah, but I love the open yeah, but
0: I love the open piece because you know Frida Kahlo is not everybody's cup of tea, right? My son right. is a Dalí nut; like he loves Salvador okay. Dalí, and I'm like, Ugh. you know, he's kind of, you know, it's. Yeah, it's not mine, but they're anyways, long story short, I love that there's that you can, you can expose them to many different types and then they can kind of choose what what it is that they, you know, want to see and what they want to talk about and what they, um, you know, what inspires them. So, oh, that's just a great unit. I love it. It's got a great context. (laughs) It's very thematic, you know, as, as Helena Curtin would say, it's meaningful, purposeful, right? Um, I I love that. So, so you're looking at themes that cross over into other disciplines. Uh, What other things are you looking at for some thematic units?
1: So that's, that's really where we're, we're starting with the thematic units. Um, we're also trying to find it, um, themes that are going to be relatable to the students and that would really honestly depend on the age. And I think the other thing that's probably a little scary for any teacher to hear is that it can change year to year. Absolutely. And, so that <laughs> and then we don't have any clue. We have to ask them, right? We have no right, clue right. what a
0: 14 year old right, really, right. really is interested right. in, right? I, I, right? I just Googled. So you can, you know, Google's a beautiful thing, right? Because I'm like, what do you, what are the trends in middle school for 2021? And I'm like, well, there you go. Like, isn't that interesting? I could see a whole bunch about that. So Right.
1: But I think it's also really important to ask Absolutely. them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and not just because you'll probably get a better answer than Google, but because what a great way to build trust and yeah. relationships with your students than to, to ask them what you're interested in. I mean, I, I'll never forget um, one year when I was teaching. And it was a very, very traditional curriculum. And we had a, a, a unit that was coming up that was on activities and the vocabulary list that I was given, this was just about two years ago, had activities on it like renting a DVD. <laughs> and um, a DVD, what? Yes. <laughs> and and, and I, th- I think another one was like playing a guitar, which I'm sure there are students who like to play a guitar, but why that was a necessary activity for the students to memorize, I don't know. Wish I could remember some of the other ones, but I, I sat with some students one day before we, as we were, I was, I was, we were wrapping up the previous unit and I'm getting thinking ahead to the next one. And I just said, I, I just kind of need some input from you guys. And I read through the list <laughs> and I can't even tell you how hysterically they were laughing. Right. Like, like we don't like things. any of that. We wouldn't do any of that. Right. Well, I think even the rent and DVD, they didn't know what I was <laughs> right. talking about. Like, I really think they didn't know. Yeah. Um, and so then asking them for some, some input then made the unit so much more engaging and exciting to them because they had ownership over it. And so I think even if we go back to thinking about that, that who are your heroes unit, so many of us start off the school year with getting to know our students. And so if you're doing some sort of surveys or activities, you're going to prob- most likely be collecting some information about you know, what do kids, if they play a sport, if they play an instrument. And that's such important data because then when we get into who are our heroes, if I know that all of my students are football fanatics, I'm definitely going to try to find some football heroes. And I'd have to Google that because I don't know the answer to that one. But, you know, that's a great way to 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 get some buy in from them and to it's not even just buy in. It it isn't about engaging students, but it's about making it relevant to them. And so you could do the heroes unit every year, but you might Mm -hmm. be switching up who those heroes are. And, you know, this is just an example in response to the to the interests of the students. Year-to-year. Absolutely.
0: I, I absolutely love that. Um, I, I think uh, John D'Amato, uh, do you know him? Have you seen one of him before? I, I know one yes. one of the things that's always struck me and he says it a lot is just that we don't – We there's no words that – we don't know that we didn't choose for ourselves, right? And so that that we really are going, it is important that we learn the words that we want to learn or that we want to know, right? And that right. Um, somebody else imposing a list of words, well, that's a whole nother podcast probably as well, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like we're, we could yeah. go down a rabbit hole as far as uh, differentiation yeah. and choice in w- vocabulary uh, as well, I suppose. Yes. But yes. Um, but yeah, I, I love that really making those connections that it's, it is it is again, I think it's, it's not either or it's not that we're learning about our students just to connect with them. It's also important to bring that into our curriculum, right. And into what we teach right. and what they learn in, 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 our classroom. So I love that. Right. So. And,
1: to, and to not make assumptions. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, when I, the more I think about it, I think some of my best activities, mm-hmm. you know, quote unquote, were, were things that were student inspired or spiraled off you know, you have one idea and you do something. I'm, I'm just thinking of a unit we did last year when we were looking at, at street art and then we started talking about popular music. And, you know, we kind of just found things that we wanted to use and you watch how students respond to certain things and then it off of that, you know? Um, and I think of, of a student who um, we were listening to a song and, and talking about the meaning in the song and he came up to me after class and said, Profe, there's another song that that we should really do. My brother listens to it all the time. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> if your, your older brother listens to it, it has to be appropriate for high school. And um, he 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 emailed me that night. Now, so like seventh grade boys don't email their teacher unless their mother right. tells them to. <laughs> so true. He emailed me that night because he was so excited about the song. Um, which I, I ended up picking up and we ended up using. And, and then the rest of the students all loved it. And it, it really wasn't extra work for me because it was practicing the language and, and what we wanted to do anyway. But the student provided me with the, the authentic resource. That's awesome. You know? That's fantastic. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you asked about other strategies for, for building proficiency. So I think there's that piece. It's really important to have, you know, the context for the language that students can relate to. Um, being able to make cross curricular connections is very valuable because if we're shooting for, I like to shoot for 100% target language environment. We're giving students, you know, a backdrop for it and a context. So when they walk in and they start hearing about it, it's not it's not completely out of the blue. And I think that it's, it's important to remember that target language isn't just about the teacher speaking the target language. It's about the the students being able to produce it in meaningful, you know, relatable ways, and that they're they're personalizing it, not just regurgitating back everything that that we say. Um, Another really important thing that I, I always do and, and very purposefully is teach students about what language proficiency is. Good. I'm glad you and brought that
0: up. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so they know the language. They know the academic yes. language that you're talking about. How
1: do you do that? Yes. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Um,
1: and so as I said, I, I, I my instructions 100% target language. Um, That is a topic that I do. So I guess I'm not 100 percent. That is a topic that I do talk about in English. And I wait until we get about three to four weeks into the school year and we just take a pause and we go through and talk about what um, most of my, my students are always novice. Uh, They've come in with very little Spanish, but we talk about what a novice mid and novice high level student can do. And I also tell them that novice low, they're only novice low for a couple of days. Once they start nodding and pointing in response, they're kind of moving out of that, that novice low range. And we also talk about what intermediate high is. If I was teaching upper levels, I would probably do like novice high. I mean, sorry, intermediate low. I'd probably do novice high, intermediate low, intermediate mid. Um, but we talk about what all those levels are and I have a very student friendly rubric that I share with them. I've had them do different activities, um, playing with the descriptors on the rubric, for example, talking about language structures, lists of words, short phrases, sentences, and, and, and they sort them and try to think, okay, which one do I think might be, you know, which level, um, and we also really emphasize that everybody's at a different place and it's okay that everybody always needs to just kind of look at where they're at and what they're shooting for to grow um we talk a lot about how it's never perfect until you get to like the superior level (laughs) um that mistakes are okay. And I always, we, we always talk about as long as I can understand what you're trying to say and your peers can, can try to, to understand. And so it's really neat when students themselves start to own that. And for example, things like comprehensibility, when they'll say things like, you know, one student will say something and then they'll, they'll say in, 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 in Spanish and then they'll say in English, I don't think I said that right. And the other student will say, Well, I understood you. That's and, great. And I just yeah. I just I just love that because that's that's so important for, for building language proficiency and, and it's important for building that safety that it's okay to make mistakes, that mistakes are are how we learn. And it it doesn't mean, because I, I get I get you know backlash on this often, it doesn't mean you just let those mistakes go. But as a as a instructor, what I do is I kind of do a mental bank. I'll even write it down on a piece of paper of some of those common mistakes I'm hearing. And then I'm just very purposeful about working them back into my instruction. So I wouldn't say, Michelle, you said that completely wrong. I'm taking three points off and here's my red pen. (laughs) So much as I, you know, either another student might correct them or I might recast back. But I just kind of bank what some of those mistakes are so that I can more purposefully work them into my instruction. We then used a proficiency based rubric to provide students with um, feedback on performance assessments, whether they're like more formative or more summative. And I'm really purposeful about using the language in the rubric in the feedback that I give students. So I don't say to th- them again, things like you did a good job putting the indirect object <laughs> pronoun in the right place. Because that's not what the
0: rubric says, right? Yeah.
1: It's not <laughs> what the rubric says. The rubric will say things like I can talk with detail about who my hero Absolutely. is. Absolutely. And so I'll respond back, you know, wow, you used a lot of details." to talk about your hero. I heard you used lists of words and lots of um, short memorized phrases. Great job. And then I'll provide them with some coaching for how to grow Mm -hmm. and things like, um, you know, next time, why don't you try to turn some of those short phrases into some sentences or consider how you might, you know, include more details. And so I do a lot of feed uh, modeling with, with that, um, One of the culturally responsive teaching practices that Zaretta Hammond talks about that I think is also really important for building language proficiency is um, self-assessment and peer feedback. And so once students have kind of an understanding of those proficiency levels, and I've already, and they're familiar with the rubric, and I've modeled for them how to give feedback, that it's not, you did this wrong, you did that wrong, you need to try harder – they're then kind of more able to do some self-assessment, and so sometimes I'll ask them before I look at their work to tell me where they think they are in the rubric, what they think they've done well, and what they think they need to do to work on. And then we conference about it. So we sit down and we look over it. We talk about their goals, what they might work on. When when we conference, I ask them three questions. They, the conferences by the time we 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 get them going take about three to four minutes. And I'll say, what do you think is going really well for you? What would you like to work on next? And what do you need from me to help you with that? And um, that then also empowers them to be able to give each other feedback. I love that. So I know all
0: the teachers out there are thinking, well, when do you do these conferences? What are the other students doing? Do you have a station rotation (laughs) of some sort going on? This is like one of those little tidbits that I know teachers are dying to know.
1: Yes, ma'am. So I do do. um, I do really like the station model. And I don't care what age level you teach, like you talked about before, no one wants to be lectured at for long periods of time. And I I, I don't have the citation for this research, but research shows that people's attention span is about 10 to 15 minutes. And so I like to do center rotations and mix things up. I think it's a trauma-informed practice, it's a culturally responsive practice, and that's a great way to differentiate if you have students um, working the different modalities of communication in one class period. So I do make um, the conferencing uh, one of those center rotations. And my centers will last anywhere between 15 to 20 minutes. And I can get through all of the students in a group in that time. And if I don't, I can get to them the next time. So, um, and this is part of the culture that we build right at the beginning of the year is that autonomy and responsibility during um, centers. And I, I, I also invest some time, i learned this from elementary teachers, in when it's okay, talking about when it's okay to interrupt me and when it mm-hmm. isn't, when I'm conferencing. And so I tell my students, and this is all in the target language, I tell them there's only three reasons for which they can interrupt me. One is if they, they brought me a mochaccino from Starbucks. I love that. <laughs> One is if there's a giant dinosaur attacking the school building. And thirdly, if I've won the lottery. There you go. And in that case, I just say adios. <laughs> I'm leaving. I love it. Um, and, and I, I also empower students to be kind of my my co-teachers, and I'll always have a co-teacher in charge. And so if a student, while I'm conferencing, that conference time is really sacred. And so because it's, it, and it's, again, it's about building trust. It's about building respect. It's about showing that student that I am there for them, and I'm all theirs at that time, and I care about them, and I care about their learning. So that time needs to be respected. But I also care about everyone else in the class, and I want them to be supported. And so I have a system where I tell students if they need help, they write their name on the board. I mean, they're supposed to first ask everybody in their Mm -hmm. group, and then if they really get stuck, they write their name on the board. My assistant teacher will notice the names and go over and ask and see if he or she can help them, if he or she is able to help them they then cross their name off the board. And if they can't, when I have a break in between conferences, I look and see who's on the board and what help do you need. I solve it and move on to the next conference.
0: I love it. So I will say this is why, Rebecca Aubrey, you are National uh, Teacher of the Year, because literally I wrote down, we could talk about differentiation, feedback, target language, station, student autonomy, self-reflection, and that you bring all of these things together in your classroom is really such an inspiration um, to all of us. And I just, I really have just loved, loved, loved uh, talking with you today about some of your things that you're thinking about and how you're setting up your new and uh, from scratch, sixth grade program. And I think there's been some really, really great uh, tidbits of some ideas. Is there any other last minute, uh, or final thoughts you'd like to share with listeners out there about, you know, even if you're not starting a new program, but things to think about when you're intentionally thinking about your teaching and your curriculum.
1: Hmm. I think, you know, I, we, we did kind of pitch this as starting a new program from scratch, but I want to be clear that I think a lot of the things I've that we've talked about, it doesn't matter if you're starting to scratch. There's a lot of ways that you can take baby steps. And so I just encourage people to to try to even take some of those baby steps. Um, I know teachers are also feeling overwhelmed and tired and traumatized. And so, you know, just be kind to yourself mm-hmm. too, and, and don't feel like there's so many ideas out there and you need to try them all. You're a bad teacher. It's, it's okay. You know, take care of yourself too. Yeah. We can, and a, it's okay. Absolutely.
0: P- apply that must, must do nice to do. <laughs> you know, like maybe yes. this year, yes. this go. year you just pick one must do, like one thing that you really want to do right. and let, just let give yourself permission, right. To let, you know, some of it go. Absolutely. I think you're, I think you're, you're right there. And I, I know I've said this before, um, but I love the word Pilot. Because if you pilot anything, it gives you permission to not be perfect at it, right? And it gives you permission to try it a little bit, see how it goes, get some data, get some feedback, reevaluate, you know, so if you're going to pilot, you know, any one of these many things we've talked about, it it kind of opens you up to, you know, not expecting perfection and... 100% fidelity, right? To, to whatever it is. So awesome. Well, I just wanted la- one last question before we go. And I asked this of all of my guests, I don't remember if I warned you ahead of time or not. Uh-huh. Um, but that is, if you could sit down, I had the honor of sitting down today and having coffee and talking with you about this. But if you could sit down and talk with anybody, it doesn't have to be a world languages professional, it can be. Um, who would you want to sit down and just have coffee with? And what would you want to talk about?
1: Oh, my gosh. You should. Have oh, see, I thought I warned this. you. I try and warn
0: <laughs> the guests ahead of time, but sometimes I forget. So this will be a spontaneous answer.
1: Oh, my goodness gracious. <laughs> I don't know why the first person that happened to my mind was Barack Obama. Oh, well, why wouldn't it be? Right. <laughs> I know. I know. Why wouldn't but So I what know. would you talk about? You know, I think I would just love to talk about the world. And I mean, ultimately, that does relate to language teaching, because what we're really trying to do is to prepare our students to interact effectively and respectfully in a globalized, interconnected world and so i think he would just be really interesting well, to talk I, and to. can
0: you imagine the perspective that he would have that no one else in the world would probably have right on that right. topic so i think it's because we were talking right. heroes and talking about your unit maybe right maybe. so uh, he, was, he was like the first I one and now it. like i've had a thousand of other names pop into course, my head right well i think i think <laughs> yes. that wouldn't be a bad one at all right well thank you again thank rebecca it's been a pleasure to uh, you know talking with you today and um, Um, I look forward to talking again in the future about any one of this list of topics that we've discussed. Thank you so much. And we will talk again. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks for joining us today on the Language Lounge World Language Teacher Talks. Hopefully through listening in on our conversation today, you've gained some insights and will be inspired to ask someone to have coffee with you and talk about the topic further. If you do, tag us on Twitter at LangLoungePod and me at Michelle Ola. I want to hear what you're learning and talking about. If you have something that you're thinking about that you would like to hear on the Language Lounge, please let me know by emailing podcast at waysidepublishing.com or leave a message at 207 9819 Or you can tweet me at LangLoungepod. And if you've liked what you've heard, please hit this subscribe button to be notified of new episodes. And if you'd be so kind, leave us a review. Thanks!